As we stand, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as followers of you, we are called to honour you in all we do, think and say. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us now to honour you as we look at your word and as you take my words that I'm going to be speaking in a few minutes. Amen. Please be seated. We are uh, in a series uh, of sermons on the, uh, in, through the book of Hebrews. Last week, uh, Mark brought us a message from chapter 12 where the writer warned the Christians that it was being written to the dangers that they were in, the dangers of missing the provision of the new creation of heaven and the fact that they had a holy God. And the passage we've got uh, in front of us this morning in Hebrews chapter 13 is uh, the last section of this book. It's the final advice that the writer is giving to this group of Christians which most people think had a Jewish background. And it's uh, practical advice concerning honouring Jesus in the local church and the local society in which they lived. And it's all about, isn't it, loving the correct things and not the incorrect things. And I've titled it, if you like, uh, Back to Basics. I don't know if you remember that mantra of John Major a few years ago. Didn't do him a lot of good, unfortunately, but um, uh, it's a Back to Basics message this morning of honouring Jesus. And uh, the writer's trying to advise these Christians. And as I was reading this and thinking and praying about it, I wonder what advice would we give to someone that we loved, perhaps a son or a daughter, perhaps a group of young Christians that we've been working with in Christianity Explored or Cypher. Well, I'm sure our motives would be the same as this motive of this writer. We would want the best for the people. Now, we need to go back a little bit into Hebrews to find out what these uh, group of Christians were actually like. Well, we see in chapter 1 of Hebrews that the writer proclaims the preeminence of Jesus in the gospel message. And then we read in chapter 2 that the readers must pay more attention to this and not to drift away from this salvation. In chapter 3, we read that they had lost their initial enthusiasm And in chapter 12, that they were slothful. They were deficient in their spiritual understanding and discernment. They were even ceasing to attend Christian meetings. They were failing to respect their spiritual leaders. And And the advice of the writer is that they should imitate their spiritual leaders. So we've got a we've got some final advice. Well, I'm sure that those that we would want to advise or to encourage perhaps wouldn't be in this same poor spiritual condition. But as we go through this, I think it's worth bearing in mind that all this advice is based upon the words of Jesus. If you look in Matthew 5, for instance, through to 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a collection of Jesus' statements concerning the necessity of moral righteousness for those that follow him. Well, here, 
the writer speaks with that authority of Jesus and not his own authority. And if we are to offer advice, surely we need to base that upon Jesus' teaching and not upon any current philosophy of the age or popular sayings. So then what should we say to our friends, to those we care about, to those we love? Well, turn to chapter 13. We're on page 1213 of our Bibles. And we're going to see that we've got four challenges to us this morning. Four challenges to us this morning. Quite uh, difficult instructions concerning honouring Jesus. And the first challenge is this. Living in love with one another. Now, the writer sees that there's possibility of change within these Christian lives because we read in chapter 6, verses 10 to 12, that these Christians had acted in love towards God and other people that they didn't always know. But here we read in verse 1, the writer raises a possibility that this isn't always so and might not be in the future. And so the Christians are instructed to live in love with each other. Now, if you think back to the times of the early church, think back to Acts 4, for instance, where all the believers shared together and they supported each one. Now, of course, here, the word love isn't just a sentimental emotion that it's often deemed to be in our society, in our culture. No, the word love here is being used as a practical way of living, of serving others at the expense of ourselves. And this is, of course, again, what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, we read that Jesus summarized the law in these two verses. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, this instruction that the writer's giving these Christians is coming directly from the authority of Jesus. And there's a distinct possibility that they might fall away from this action. So he encourages them, continue to love actively one another, but also to practically love one another. And we do this, of course, by entertaining strangers, verse 2. Now, it's practical action here, isn't it? It's providing food and hospitality for those that are not local, those that have got no friends, for those that are disadvantaged and travelling between the churches of the day. And we need, don't we, to be reminded of this ourselves. If we have faith but no practical outworkings on, then we need to doubt the reality of that faith. Jesus calls us to give up all for him and to love one another in practical ways. Now, of course, there are many ways that we can do this. We can provide meals for visitors to our area. We can uh, help at home when we'd rather be doing our own things. We can sponsor those that are in need. I had the privilege last night of hearing a young lady from Uganda talk about the work of compassion how she had been born into an incredibly poor home. And yet, she now holds a first-class honours degree from London University. And that was just made possible by some couple in America giving a very small amount of money. 
And she said, not only does it change my life radically, there are people in, in Uganda who have become Christians as solely as a result of this witness of Christians in other parts of the world giving small amounts of money each month so that these children can be helped. Practical actions of showing love. And we can do this. But why should we do this, you might say? We'll look at verse 2 again. Because you entertain angels and you don't know what the benefit will be. Now, of course, this is a reference back to that, that account in the Old Testament, in Genesis of Abraham and Lot. But I'm sure that there are many of us this morning that can testify to this fact, the benefit of entertaining others, of being generous with hospitality in our own homes. And of course, in doing this, we often gain more than we often give. But in verse 3, the writer goes on and expands upon the point, because not only are they to love their brothers and their sisters, but you are to identify with those that are disadvantaged, those that are suffering, those that are on the edge of respectability, those in prison. And of course, this is the beginning of the week where we identify with those in prison in our country. And if we, if we identify with those people, we are putting ourselves into their position. We're losing the pride that we hold in ourselves and the positions that we hold in society. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of that time of Jesus. If you remember, how Jesus accepted children to come to him. And of course, in those days, children were the lowest of the low within their society. And throughout Jesus' teachings, we seem to hear the same message, don't we? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in wealth. How hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, here again, we're pointed in the same direction. Identify with those in prison. Imagine what it must be like to lose your freedom, your individuality, your esteem and your pride. And why must we be like this? Well, because it's a practical outworking of the love of Jesus. Because if we identify with them, we're much more likely to pray for them, more likely to provide for them, more likely to be on their side against all the, all the power and authority of others. And of course, if we're doing this, we're taking the attitude of Jesus and the actions of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, who reached out to the poor, the oppressed and those in need. We're identifying with him who died on the cross. And so that's why we are called to do this. And I would like to just uh, remind us all, we might say, well, these are Christians who were in prison. Well, yes, they are. And of course, there are Christians today in prison in other parts of the world, in, in Muslim countries, in Pakistan, Burma, Indonesia, those that are suffering for Jesus today. Well, we can identify with them. We can understand what's going on through the Barnabas Trust, for instance. We can pray for them. We can identify with them. So it's all practical teaching, isn't it? It's all an encouragement for us to work in practical ways to love and honour Jesus and those that serve him. Now, of course, you might say, well, this is all very difficult. This is difficult teaching, Nigel. Well, it is. But look at verse 6. There's the promise. The Lord is my helper. The Lord 
is my helper. We don't do this in our own strength. We do it in the power of the Holy Spirit and the Lord who helps us. So that's the first one. That was perhaps slightly easy because the second one is even more controversial and I'm probably going to get a bit wrong here. It's marriage, isn't it? It's marriage. Look at verses 4 and 5. The writer here is addressing the idea that some Christians, some of these Jewish Christians had that you couldn't be pure if you were married. And the fact that marriage wasn't being upheld as it should have been. So I might step on some toes here. Do forgive me. But I do believe that the word of God is written for our benefit and the word of God gives us the ideal way to live. It gives us the way that God had planned for his creation to live. Remember, marriage was God's idea. It's his design. When a man and woman are married, they become one flesh. They become one relationship. God, in essence, is creating a new life. And marriage should be honoured in the same way that human life is honoured, created by God. So the writer says, all should honour marriage, whether we're married or not. And so this is difficult. God desires an ordered society where people can live in harmony and with the right relationship with each, with each other and with him. And of course, this means living a pure moral life. And so this goes right against the spirit of the age that we live in and the freedom of the individual. It might be an idea just to consider what do we think our freedom should allow us to do as followers of Jesus? What about our bodies, our relationships, our actions, and even our thought lives? Do they all come under the lordship of Jesus? Because Jesus states our thoughts are as answerable as our practical actions. Well, look at verse 4. Because I believe that we need, don't we, to be teaching this within our church, within our homes, and to our young people. Because it will have a tremendous effect upon our lives if we take it seriously and are obedient to it. Look at it. It protects the value of marriage relationships. It protects the individual. It protects the value of family life. It gives children the security of a stable home life. The writer states, all should honour marriage and the marriage bed. Now, if this is the case, of course, we as Christians, this should prohibit any one of us breaking up another marriage by their actions. Now, I'm sure that we can all recognise the difficulties of marriage. I certainly can. Marriage is a lifetime responsibility of learning to share oneself with another one, of living with hurts received and hurts directed, of forgiveness, joy and reunion. Someone said this about marriage and Christian marriage in particular. Marriage is a long, sometimes awkward dance in which two people who are selfish and are in need of forgiveness learn slowly by the grace of God to build something beautiful and lasting, to raise children and establish a home. Scripture says marriage, healthy marriages, are an encouragement to others in which we show Christian love, Christian intimacy, 
and we learn to live together. Now again, this is very difficult teaching, isn't it? And if we find it teaching difficult, go to verse 6. The Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. That doesn't mean there won't be any problems. That doesn't mean we need to be honest about it. But the Lord is my helper. And if you think that's difficult, move on a bit. Because we've got another idea which is perhaps even more difficult for us in this age. Look what it says in verse 5. God will judge all those who are sexually immoral. Now this doesn't mean, of course, that God can't or won't forgive if the person comes to a point of asking for forgiveness. But it does state there will be judgment. And of course there will be judgment in many ways. Emotional, spiritual, psychological, bodily. Now, without us being judgmental, because it's not for us to judge, it's talking about God here, I think all of us can see that if we look at our society today, the results of immoral behaviour always come out in some forms. I see it every week at work with family life and children. So the writer reminds these Christians that this isn't the way to live. No, they are to seek to be holy people. Now, because of this... I chose the gospel reading that we've just had. Because in it, you'll see what happened with Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Note, Jesus didn't condemn her. But he did tell her to change her ways, to go and sin no more. He gave clear instructions that there was to be repentance, which involves change. But there was a choice for her. She could do so, and he didn't condemn her. And I would just like to add that this doesn't mean that we shouldn't accept and welcome people into our fellowship and church who have lived lives with these experiences. But if we are being faithful to God's word and plan, then we need to remind ourselves this is what God expects of us as Christians. And this is what we should be sharing and teaching within our families and within our fellowship together. So two difficult points, or three really, Living in love, marriage, judgment, all about relationships. And then lastly, the fourth difficult problem, the problems of wealth and money. Look at verse 5. It again reminds me of the teaching of Jesus, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Where your heart is, there your riches will be. The love of money is the problem, isn't it? And again, we see this goes against the understanding of our age in which we live. And I, I suggest that in most ages, the rich and the powerful are the ones that are always respected. That's what we should aim for, we are told. That's the main goal of life. Now, clear, Jesus clearly teaches that this isn't, isn't to be our first aim in life. He says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given unto you. In other words... We are to live lives that are different and transformed from the ways of the world. It goes on to say, be content with what God has provided for you. But why should we be content? Because the writer states, God, in verse 5, God will never leave you. In other words, our happiness, our security, is not to be based upon the riches that we can work on, but rather for the security that God offers his people. That's the exhortation of this writer to this group of Christians. Now, in our age, again, we will find this difficult. 
Using of all the emphasis that we get in front of us, all the game shows on TV which promote winners, which promote fame and financial reward. Well, here we've got turn back to Jesus, the source of our salvation, which will last through eternity, not like the riches of the world, which are subjected to rust and spoil. And again, if you find this difficult, go back to verse 6. The Lord is my helper. That's the promise we've got this morning. That's the promise. So there we have it, a difficult passage. Back to basics that the writer is advising these Christians and encouraging these Christians to follow. To live lives that are very different to those of the age. We too can be encouraged, can't we, to do the same for one another. To encourage one another. Yes, we're not perfect. Yes, there will be mistakes. But God will offer to help us through the power of his Holy Spirit to do so if we seek his help. That's the promise that we've got and we can bring to this communion table this morning. So let's rejoice together. Let's rejoice the fact that we have got a saviour who died for us to make this new life possible. Amen.